Welcome to our interview segment. Today, we are going to be interviewing Dr. James Bird, who's an Associate Professor of American Religious History and Associate Dean for Graduate Education and Research Chair at the Graduate Department of Religion at Vanderbilt University, my alma mater. Yay! Go Vanderbilt! (laughs) Go Vanderbilt! Yeah, go doors. That's what we say. And uh, Dr. Bird's latest book is Sacred Scripture, Sacred War, the Bible, and the American Revolution, which was named one of the top books of the year by Christianity Today. He's currently writing a book on the Bible and the American Civil War um, with Oxford University Press. I have to say my favorite book that Dr. Bird has written is on Roger Williams, but he is an excellent historian of um, American religious history and war. And so we're really excited to have you with us today. So welcome, Dr. Bird. Hi, Dr. Leah Payne. Great to talk to you. <laughs> it's great to talk to you, too. Um, so my first question for you is kind of a general one, and it's this. Do Americans especially like to fight holy wars? You know, uh, I think that's all the kinds of wars Americans fight. Um <laughs> Uh, Harry Stout says that all American wars are sacred wars, and he's probably right. Mm. There's just always a religious element there just because of the nature of the nation as it's developed. Do you think that's true? Do you think that's true more generally? Is every war that a major nation fights a holy war of some kind? You know, I don't know about every nation. I know that uh, in, in many cases that's the case. There's always some sort of uh, beyond earthly element to it, some sort of spiritual element or sacred element to it. Civil religion is more than just American, of course. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a worldwide phenomenon in one shape or another. Not all wars have been that way, but a good many have, for sure. Mm. You know, in this episode, we were talking about specifically the Vietnam War, and I know that you have now done a ton of research on two— in two different eras in American religious history, um, the Revolutionary War and then um, the Civil War. Can you talk about the distinctions that you've noticed between those two eras? You know, not as many as I expected to find. I mean, I see a lot more similarities than distinctions. Mm. I mean, in the Civil War, you know, they really thought they were refighting the American Revolution. I mean, they saw both sides, North and South, felt that they were the side that was closest to the founders and closest to the revolutionary generation. They felt, and they cited the patriots uh, each against the other. Like the Northern said, no, we're the, we're the heirs of the founders. And the Southern Southern said, no, we're the heirs of the founders. And so it was like a second American revolution. That's interesting. Did they have particular American founders that they cited? Like did the North like a particular version of, of American fathers and mothers or, yeah, was there a difference? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, well, they all cited the same. They cited the same founders, and they cited the same patriots. Oh. Uh, they just interpreted them differently. You know, the the South saw themselves uh, like the founders. We're revolting against the the powers, you know, the empire. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we're 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 for states' rights, which is kind of like what the founders did because they were they were the colonial rights against Britain. And the Northerners said, no, 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 we're defending the nation the founders created. So we're obviously holding the founders' legacy at heart. When, so, yeah. When you when you mentioned the idea that during the Civil War, they saw themselves as refighting the revolution, I had this sort of chill run down my spine because I just heard, yeah, I think it was yesterday or maybe two days ago, a long segment on NPR about 
whether or not Americans now think we're on the precipice of another civil war eventually. And it made me think, wow, like if we did fight another civil war, how, how you know, would it be like relitigated like another American revolution? So since this has been a hot topic lately, at least in the media about like, are we so divided that there could be another civil war? Do you, what's your take on that? You know, that's just so scary. I mean, it, and we see it all the time. I mean, just the civil war itself is everywhere. I mean, it wasn't uh, just a few days ago, I saw in the newspaper that the president was talking about Robert E. Lee again, and the Confederate monuments issue, the civil war is still around talking about that, all the issues around racial justice brings back uh, issues of uh, white privilege and white supremacy, mm-hmm. all of that surrounded the Civil War. Uh, the division, anytime the nation's divided, people tend to hearken back to the Civil War because mm. that's the most serious division, of course. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, do you think that, um, can you can you imagine like what sort of rhetoric people would use now? Um, or do you hear any similar rhetoric when it comes to the kinds of Bible verses they cite, the kinds of theologies they like to use. Do you see any similarities between now and and the Civil War? You bet. I mean, it wasn't, was it just last year that Romans 13 was on the headlines, right? <laughs> right, right, right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Obey 13. the authorities. Obey the authorities, all wow. that stuff. Obey the, obey the authorities. Now, Romans 13, you know, before I do a book, I do a database of the Bible citations in the wars, which takes me forever, you know, and I use a lot of data analysis. And when my when I did the Revolutionary War book, I found that the most cited biblical text was Romans 13. Wow. Well, no way. Here's a, you know, spoiler alert, the most cited biblical text in the Civil War was wow. Romans 13. <laughs> so, yeah, it's that is the perennial text that yeah. comes up yeah. even, so, even today. So it's like a, in a war, you have to have a total lockdown conflation between God's will and the will of the government. I mean, to do something that extreme, which is maybe why there can be no, I mean, I don't know, but like, it seems like having a purely secular war would be really difficult because... Yeah, it, it would be. I mean, I, I had an ethicist one time uh, when I was, I think in divinity school, who said you can't get Kansas farm boys to go fight for oil, right? You know, mm. there's always right. um, some higher motive. And and I think that's the case, and certainly in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, it's not like they had to concoct some sacred motive. It was just the Bible was so much a part of their culture, so much a part of their thoughts. I mean, even people who weren't particularly religious, like Abraham Lincoln, wow. knew the Bible up one side, down the other, and couldn't give a speech without having either biblical quotations in it or biblical, like biblical allusions in it somewhere. Well, that bringing that up, the biblical literacy of previous generations really seems to highlight our current illiteracy in terms <laughs> yeah, of exactly. you know as a culture. Um, Brian and I teach students, many of whom are raised in Christian households who know very little, very biblically illiterate. And so those are, you know, those are like church kids. Um, But uh, when I think about our national leadership, you know, our current president doesn't seem to know or care to know much about biblical stories or illusions. I mean, how, how do you think that's influencing how we're we're all thinking about the nation and about war. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, today, I mean, it's just that we are so much more biblically illiterate today than, than they were then. I mean, and part of it's just practically speaking, because 
we have so much stuff to read now, you know, mm. you, you, not only all the books, but the online reading. And then the one book that everybody owned, if they owned a book, was the Bible. I mean, people learned to read by reading the Bible. It was the common sort of lingua franca. It was the, the common cultural norm. And so it just saturated everything. I mean, everybody knew the Bible stories. And that's just not the case anymore. It, and yet there's still, especially in evangelicalism in America, the sense that the Bible is still the nation's book. Hmm. It's just that even evangelicals don't seem to know that book as well as they used to. It makes me wonder what would be the textual or spiritual basis for a new war you know, a hypothetical mm-hmm. war, what it would even be. In, in your book, Sacred Scripture, Sacred War, I saw that you have a whole chapter on how David, King David from the Hebrew Bible could function. I thought that was so fantastic just scanning that chapter because, you know, David, he's like hiding out and he has people gathering to him in a cave. It has a very revolutionary feel to it. Could you talk for a minute about the way that during that time period, King David could be seen as a kind of a founding figure of an American revolution? Yeah, David, everybody loved David. I mean, what was not, what was there not to love about David? <laughs> exactly. It's like, you know, he could go out and slay a Philistine with like a sling, right? When right. he's just a kid, uh, and yet go in and write a psalm about it, right? Exactly. So he had the military might, you know, he could kill a thousand Philistines and then go in and, and write this spiritual, write the Bible, right? So <laughs> right. Uh, he was the man after God's own heart, you know, so... David was the mighty warrior who was also spiritual, and that was so important to the founding mm-hmm. generation because it proved that you could be both Christian and a warrior. Right, mm-hmm. right. You could be both loyal to God and loyal to the nation. There was no conflict wow. between being a great patriot and a great Christian, and that was an important point to make Wow! in the revolutionary period. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to ask you a question that may take you a little far outside of the—I may ask you to take off the historian's hat for a second, um, which okay. is is to say, um, do, you, do you think that these previous generations, these previous conversations about war and the nation and God, um, it, do you—are there any lessons that— current Americans kind of wrestling through all these issues can take away um, from those previous generations? Yeah, I mean, I think that the lesson, the best lesson that I can find is not that he was perfect in what he thought, or certainly not perfect in his views of race, but Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln was amazing in his ability to look past just look past God for what God does for me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, if we look at his second inaugural address, which Frederick Douglass said sounded more like a sermon than a, than a political speech, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's saying, you know, both North and South thought they were doing God's will, mm-hmm. but maybe neither one was. Maybe God's judging us all. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So Lincoln just had this kind of sober, realistic view of a just God that domineers over all and in a kind of hum, a humility about the way he looked at God. So it was like approaching um, wars and great conflicts from a divine perspective or looking at it from a religious perspective with humility, saying we don't really know everything. There's a lot that we don't know, but we have to just believe, you know, that, um, that the cause of God is being served. 
So. Wow. It's an amazing paradox to think on the one hand, you know, in a situation where war is is potential to think, okay, we don't know what God wants. But then on the other hand, to kill, it seems to require almost a kind of moral certainty in a way. It right. seems like that would be really, it would really take a, it would really take a, a sensitive kind of mind or morality to navigate that. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, to get, to, to actually, and that's really interesting. Uh, one of Drew Gilpin Faust is a historian of the Civil War, and until recently was president of Harvard University, um, said in one of her books that the hardest part was convincing people to kill. Mm. Wow. Um, it was the harder courage, and um, that was a phrase also used at the time, mm-hmm. that it's one thing to get people to die for a cause. It's another thing to get people to kill for a cause. Right. Wow. And people who were raised in Christianity and raised in all these visions of martyrdom they had a sense of giving their lives for something. They had a sense of, of sacrificing themselves, but to get them to actually kill um, was really remarkable. And that was a harder courage that they had to come up with. Wow. I don't know if you looked into this at all, but did you notice any differences between, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, in these prior wars, it's almost always men who are going out to, to die and to kill. Um, were there any perspectives, like how did women, um, approach this, uh, you know, the idea of going to war was, were there any distinctions or were they, yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, in the civil war period, there are just, just tons and tons of diaries, you know, from women. And I've read just so many of these and they talk about going to war and, and actually Drew Gopin Faust again, wrote a book on Confederate women, um, and, uh, you know, mothers of invention. So it, it's like the idea of that, you know, they were just many in times they were just as patriotic, um, on their side, just as fervent for the, for the war as any men were in their primary sources. So, yeah, they were very, felt very much involved in many cases. Um, so yeah, it's, they were all around it and all, all through it. And they suffered because especially in the South, you know, the percentage of more, there were more men in the South percentage-wise in the war. Wow. Not more men total, but more men percentage-wise because it was a smaller population. Yeah. So more and more women were on their own having to deal with everything mm-hmm. uh, while the men were gone. They suffered just dearly. There were even riots, uh, like in North Carolina and places, because the women were starving as the war drew, grew on. So they were really patriotic, especially in the beginning, and then as it just kept going on and on, wow. some of that yeah. died away. Wow. Do you know, are there surviving accounts from um, people of African descent in that era? Yes, uh, there are. And, you know, and there are, of course, slave narratives all over the place that were just so helpful as primary sources. Um, So you get a lot of interpretations. And, of course, you have people like Frederick Douglass, who wrote a lot through the war, um, had a continuous dialogue going on about the war and what it meant. And, like, just the, the measure of, uh, of African suffering, African suffering, African-American suffering in that period, it's just unimaginable. Not only slavery, but you're trying to break out from slavery. And, and all the African-Americans who served in the Union Army fighting for freedom, literally, mm-hmm. um, which was something that many of them were very proud to do. It, it's just an amazing story. Wow. Well, thank you so much for for taking some time to share your research and your perspective with us, especially the lessons for our current uh, our current context. We really appreciate your time, Dr. Bird. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Bird. This has been wonderful. Thank you.
Good luck in your research going forward. Thank you.